We have a global network, although I think that will change. It will become a fragmented network of local internets. This is the Hidden Power podcast, where we are interested in how the world works, how it doesn't work, and how to get it working better. We are your hosts, Ed Straw, my co-host and guest in episode one, and me, Philip Tottenham. In each episode, we hear from people working at the leading edge of where governance is attempting to bring about positive change, who have found themselves stepping back to look at the systems in which they operate. In this episode, Observer Tech columnist John Norton on governance in that great Wild West of our era, cyberspace. In the previous episode, we touch on government's poor record when it comes to technology systems. This time, in my conversation with Ed, we're stepping away from government as such and looking at the hidden power in this fact of life that, in a relatively short space of time, has come to mediate many aspects of our working and domestic experience. As Ed says towards the end of this episode, our extraordinary access to the world's knowledge has made of our era an age of enlightenment. And yet, the companies and technologies that have brought us these freedoms are party to some of the worst excesses of totalitarianism. This snippet from our initial chat, referencing an article of John's from June 2020, puts it into context. He talks about IBM and Amazon asking for regulation on facial recognition technology because they call it the plutonium of AI. Yeah. That's fairly sobering stuff, isn't it? It certainly is. And for those organizations who, in many respects, would have a benefit in investing in facial recognition, to come out and say that is pretty surprising. That There were comments that they're rather behind. But, I mean, it really does make the point that just bunging new technologies out into the world, into society, without really any thought and that is how silicon valley operates you know it's like okay invent something at a desk and produce it and so on and it may be incredibly clever chuck it out and see what happens and we've we've seen that that's not necessarily a good idea so on to john norton some people will recognize him from his tech column in the observer newspaper however he also holds various academic posts His central role is director of the Press Fellowship Programme at Wolfson College, Cambridge, but he's also Emeritus Professor for the Public Understanding of Technology at the Open University. Starting as an electrical engineer who worked in systems modelling and analysis, he subsequently developed an interest in the public understanding of technology and later in the social, political and cultural impact of the internet. Anyway, here he is speaking at the launch of Ed's book back in April 2020. There was a time in the late 1970s and the 1980s when cyberspace was a parallel universe to what John Perry Barlow used to call meat space, that is to say, the physical world that we all inhabit and we're all busy despoiling. But from the arrival of the World Wide Web in the early 1990s, uh, those parallel universes began to merge. And so we got to the position we're in today, where it no longer makes any sense at all to distinguish between the online and offline worlds. And even those few small distinctions between the two that had managed to persist, they have now effectively been erased by the coronavirus. We're all online now, all of us. And so what's happened is that overlaying on top of the real world governance failures enumerated by Ray and Ed, 
we also have the chronic governance lacunae of cyberspace, and it's becoming clear that this is a toxic combination. When it first emerged in the 1970s and 80s, cyberspace was a totally ungoverned realm because the two founding axioms of the network, that there should be no central ownership and control, and that the network should have a permissive end-to-end -end technology, it created a space for what actually became known as permissionless innovation. So the internet that we created is effectively a global system for creating surprises. Some of those surprises were nice, the World Wide Web, Wikipedia, Voice over IP, for example. There were pleasant surprises, but other surprises were less so. The trouble is that nature, as well as capitalism, abhors a vacuum. And gradually this ungoverned realm was captured and a kind of order, a kind of order imposed. This order, however, was not imposed by institutions of democratic governance, however flawed, but by a small number of tech corporations, two of which developed a business model which we now call surveillance capitalism and which turned out to have toxic effects on democratic processes. And all the while, while this was going on, this process of imposing order on network chaos, traditional government was notable only by its absence. And one of the most interesting things that have happened in, in recent times is the way these tech giants have begun to appropriate the powers of what we normally think of as democratic institutions. There are lots of examples of this. For example, uh, the, the, the so-called right to be forgotten. But the, the, the one that really struck me this week was when two of these giant companies, Apple and Google, announced that they had made an agreement, a deal, that they were going to create application programming interfaces that are called APIs for the two mobile operating systems in the world. That's the Apple iOS one and the Google Android one. And the purpose of these APIs was to enable governments to develop and install apps for contact tracing uh, in order to combat the coronavirus crisis. Now, the really interesting thing is that these companies also have laid down a condition. The condition is that governments cannot make these apps compulsory. And if they try to do so, the companies will withdraw the apps, period. Now, I'd like you to ponder the implications of this in relation to the dilemmas discussed in the book. Here we have two functional sovereigns, Apple and Google, dictating terms to what we used to think of as sovereign powers of territorial administrations. There's still a significant digital divide in different societies, including Britain. Um, in this country, for example, the volunteers and others I've been talking to in my village and elsewhere, they're finding that the people who often need the help most and are most vulnerable to the, to the crisis are people who actually don't use the Internet. And that's a significant problem that I think, broadly speaking, you tend to forget about. In terms of how we would move towards a better society, well, that's the question raised by the whole book. At some point, what I felt we need to talk about most is not just where we want to get to, but how, in a political sense, we might we have a global network, although I think that will change. It will become a fragmented network of local internets, which will be subjected to government control in their jurisdictions. Um, but at the moment, we have the problem that it is still global and we have local administrations. 
there have been a few cases where some kind of order has been restored. For example, in relation to child pornography, there is a good deal of effective cooperation by state organisations, which has had, in collaboration with the social media companies, has had an impact. But in most of the other areas, the, the technology has developed and the companies have exploited it without any kind of uh, regulation. So if we were going to change that, two things would have to happen. The first is that the public would have to be concerned about some of the downsides of this stuff because in democratic states, governments rarely move unless there's some kind of citizen concern. And at the moment, that citizen's concern is not being expressed in any kind of effective way and perhaps not even being felt in an extended way. And the second thing is we need to simply overhaul the laws we've got or think about new kinds of regulations that we might need. Antitrust law, for example, it needs to be overhauled. Uh, it's still very powerful and could be used, but it isn't. And if you just want an example of that, I mean, for example, Facebook should never be allowed to own WhatsApp. And Google should never be allowed to own YouTube. Simple things like that we could do if we had the political will. But political will only comes from the feeling on the part of politicians that the voters are really interested in this. That was very interesting. And I think the first thing that um, John mentions that I think is worth tackling is this idea of a fragmented network of local internets. To me, that sort of sounds like a deglobalization, like this infringement of governance on the freedom of the movement of information across political boundaries. It's, I mean, it sounds like a sort of protectionist kind of mindset. Yeah, I mean, in, in essence, he's saying what China does now, which is ring fence uh, its internet and have mm. firewalls around its country and control what the internet can do inside your country. In, in effect, he's saying that's what's going to happen everywhere. And I think the reason he's saying that is because at present, with its global reach, it's become impossible or very difficult for any form of democratic governance to get hold of that. Mm. Um, the, 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 the only way you could do that uh, currently is, if you like, via a form of global governance, which would be the UN or mm. an agency of the UN that had responsibility for regulation of new technologies. I think that in the case of China, I'm just going to see if I can pull up this article where... He where he's talking about how China is using facial recognition technology everywhere. It's, it's one of his ironies that, that if you go down in the direction of the Chinese route, then the danger is that notionally democratic governments will use these new powers to get into the surveillance state in a big way. I disagree to some extent because, as he says, actually national governments can do a lot more to regulate what comes into their jurisdictions from these global tech giants mm. than most of them do. So if you take the problems with Uber and with Airbnb, for example, then national governments are perfectly free to exercise controls and regulations over the way in which those technologies uh, but you, you don't see that because I know that some people would clearly welcome any restriction on the rampant capabilities of tech giants 
across our societies. But other people would see that as being a um, an infringement of, of freedom yeah. to to, yeah. to do I business. Mean, in many respects, this comes back to we've got two wrong things here in mm. play. One, we've got these totalitarian corporates, in effect, who are mm. deciding what they're going to do and how they're going to behave and sod any national government that should get in the way. On the other hand, we have fairly inept national governments Mm. trying to deal with this. And there we are as consumers and citizens sitting in the middle of this going, you know, which do I prefer? I think that there's a lot of people who are oblivious to this, either because, as John says, they're not online in the first place or because they haven't gained the functional literacy online to see where manipulations might be taking place. see what's going on but you can see for example barcelona um Mm. where airbnb has had very damaging effects on barcelona on the uh, town center yes yeah for the people that live there then i think the people that live there having suffered these pernicious effects will very rapidly understood what those are so you've got these two things in opposition competing, if you like, for our attention, our politics, and neither's in the right place. So again, if we look at this systemically, if we Mm. look at the governance, where can we find the answer to that Mm. dilemma? Well, I mean, I I want to drill into that a bit more with this idea of the digital divide. Um, He he talks about the people in his village who Mm. are not even online. The digital divide obviously exists, and... Mm. Governments found plenty of ways of communicating with people before the internet was ever heard of. And if we had had this virus arriving, say, 30 years ago, then all of those mechanisms of public and municipal communication uh, would have swung into action. Mm. One of the biggest feeders of the digital divide is just the sheer unusability of many websites. So, I mean, even I, a comparatively, comparatively, I should say, techno-literate person, you know, you, you enter some government website, indeed, you enter some corporate website, and it's absolutely hideous in its usability. Mm. Um, so one of the first things that's screamingly obvious is that you make these websites much easier to use. Mm. You have to claim benefits online now, even for people who have severe disabilities. And then once you get into the online claims, it's pretty damn hideous as to how you go about it. It's quite interesting in relation to the virus that suddenly claiming a benefit or indeed receiving a benefit became a comparatively straightforward thing. Because it had to be. If we were much clearer about when and where, and indeed the purpose of benefits, which again we need to come back to, and then designed a simple system mm. that was easier to use. But I um, suppose that's in part kind of, you know, if, if someone's paid on the amount of pages they produce, they're going to recommend producing as many pages as possible. You know, that's probably, there's a structural element that feeds into, the, um, into well, that complication. Uh, Well, that's a very interesting point. So this is the concept of something structurally determined. So if a system is structurally determined, like for cats to kill birds, Mm. then it will do what it does. If there's an incentive in the system to just produce numbers of pages, then you'll get numbers of pages rather than Mm. usability. 
And so often contracts, wherever they are, are written in terms of you're going to do this, this and this, mm. rather than you're going to produce a purpose, you're going to produce an end product. If you have a two-party system, it will produce uh, zigzag policies. Mm. So you will get, whether you like it or not, a school's policy going, you know, one direction, and then when the next party gets into power, you'll have a school's policy going in another direction. Getting systems thinking into government, currently it is structured determined to produce simple systematic solutions. Some of those will be appropriate, mostly they won't be. If you're going to get systems thinking practiced widely in government, then you have to change the structural determinants that would stop them reaching for the systematic bag and what they've done for years and years and years and force them, in effect, to make them... To, to rethink. ...wider systems thinking. I think just to get back to, to John's talk, I um, was, was very interested in this idea of, of surveillance capitalism and it brings to mind, for me, the whole Cambridge Analytica media show. And I was thinking about it. I, I saw years ago... Uh, presentation where that sort of great bogeyman Alexander Nix stood mm. up and sort of laid out what Cambridge Analytica could do but what he was really doing was encapsulating what surveillance capitalism really amounts mm. to and in fact I will link that talk in the show notes but he mentions this ocean psychographic model so this is this idea that based on these five spectra of human behavior they can more or less know more about your behavior than you know yourself. And he pointed out that most Americans have about 4,500 4, data points floating about online. Then he sort of links this to this psychographic modeling where the example he uses is a, a, a beach owner who wants to keep people off his beach. So he could put up a sign saying private beach, which may or may not be effective. Or he could put up a sign saying warning sharks which might be more effective. And this is how he basically encapsulates how he thinks political messaging should be done. Now, to me, there's obviously a lot of hype in making Cambridge Analytica look like a potent force, which maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, who knows. But I think there's definitely no doubt that the, the revenue models for people like Google, for example, uh, or Facebook, are very much geared around advertising and clickbait and therefore, the thing that people will click the most is the thing that is most emotive. What's the system's thinking address to a scenario like that? Uh, indeed. So let's have a think about that. There we are. We have this capacity to manipulate human behavior. And that capacity can be used malignly. It can be used undemocratically. I think the first thing to note is there's nothing new about seeking to manipulate voters. And there no. is absolutely nothing new about fake news. And of course, it's the newspapers who now often complain most vociferously about social media because they're mm. essentially a major competitor. It's often the newspapers that have done all of this manipulation of fake news in the past. So this is not a new problem. The second thing is that populations do get savvy to when they're being spun and they do get savvy to fake news. And I suspect that we're going to have to go through quite a lot more fake news before 
humans develop a better capacity mm. to understand that. I do think that there is a bigger issue across the board, which is this. We elect politicians, and now it's perfectly usual for them to lie, to be disingenuous, to spin, to mash out the statistics and so on. Is that, is that new, though? Is that something that's... No, it's, no, it's nothing new. But, I mean, it is now much more... It's not just acceptable. It, it's, it's almost become the norm. We need to deal in reality. Otherwise, we're not going to solve many of these complex situations and demands and problems and so on. We're just not. So you then say, OK, we're going to have to deal in reality. If you've produced a system of governing that is based on reality and works in reality. First of all, you're requiring the people engaged in that system to deal in reality, I not lie. And you have independent institutions, therefore, that are responsible for that reality, if you like. You know, it's no good asking governments, you know, how, how are your policies going? Are they working? Oh, yes, tick, 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 you know, it's absurd. So you've got a system that's working in reality. There is a point of maturity about us as citizens mm. of accepting complexity, of accepting nuance, of accepting... There are almost no simple answers left mm. anywhere for anything. And that, therefore, we will be engaged in understanding and solving a problem. In, I mean, you, you come back to the whole Brexit thing. It was simply an adversary argument and people throwing around all sorts of stuff rather than a process of deliberation, as, for example, they used in Ireland for the abortion referendum, which was an absolutely fantastic way of going about resolving arguably the most contentious issue, bearing in mind that Ireland's history is a Catholic country, a very mm. Catholic country, and the power of the church there. Resolving a contentious issue in a way that didn't leave a lot of sore losers. But that depended on this process of deliberation, which was built around a citizens' assembly, which was all open to anyone that wanted to listen or engage, that heard from experts and specialists, that heard from people with different opinions mm. and opposing opinions, that talked about it and deliberated on it using tools and techniques of deliberation, and produced an answer and, and the government was uh, and the political parties were very effective as well in doing that it's a very good example of resolving something outside the political system which is a lot of what we need to do of getting all of these difficult decisions outside of political jousting and into the citizens to consider now if you've created a discourse in society it is around understanding it's around learning it's around reality well, who needs lies? You raised an interesting point about the, the cultural element of that, and you've touched on it with this idea of, you know, as citizens, we just need to open our eyes. And, and what you were saying was that in the past, if a politician lied, that was basically the end of their career. Whereas now yeah. it's, we have this culture of being too tired to, to resist yeah. or we just accept it. But, yeah, I mean, 40, 50 years ago, if you, as a politician, were found to be lying, then you would be sacked. There was no question about it. And so acceptable behaviour amongst politicians 
and this goes across the board, has declined very, very substantially to the point where we now expect them to lie. And it's simply not tenable. I'm trying to think of a good example. In Romania, under communism, Ceausescu, they had a major, major problem with kids dying in orphanages. And their response was simply to uh, suppress the figures. There aren't kids dying in orphanages. So what happened? Kids kept on dying in orphanages. Mm. Lying is not a viable way to run government. So in many respects, my response to your question, you know, what do you do about fake news, Cambridge Analytica, social Mm. media spinning? Well, I don't see any way round there being a constitutional requirement for what I call straight speech. That, yeah, you can have an opinion. Right, I've got an opinion. You can say, a source told me, and you can be clear about the nature of the source. But fundamentally, we have to start operating government and politics on the basis of reality. But isn't the problem with reality really a problem of credibility? Because I think that there's this impression previous to Brexit and previous to the election of Donald Trump, more or less that the people in charge more or less knew what they're talking about. And now that has been completely turned on its head. I mean, obviously that system wasn't working for everybody and the people who were supposed to know didn't have credibility. Yeah, I mean, it's crept up on us gradually. We have to grip this and we have to say, you know, is this a basis to run the world? People say, well, how do you change things? Well, you change things as... People have changed them in the past. I mean, in many respects, you know, many of us, I suppose those people that dominate the discourse, they're very comfortable lies, you know, what is the problem? Yeah, they all lie, but what is the problem? And so we sit there and we don't get politically active. If we want to change things, and this has been the truth throughout history, then we're going to have to start talking about lying, not lying, and about systems of government. Well, about this issue of political will and citizen concern, and I'm putting in the show notes a link to this article. I don't know if you've got a chance to read it on um, Google in China. So it's an article from MIT where they outline the three-way power play between Silicon Valley, Beijing, and Washington. And what was sort of heartening about it was, well, I'll read out this passage, which is symbolic of of a, a road ahead. It says, the Google employees have demonstrated the ability to mobilize quickly and effectively. As with protests against US defense contracts and a walkout last November about how the company has dealt with sexual harassment. In late November, more than 600 Googlers signed an open letter demanding that the company drop the Dragonfly project. That's the project of having a presence in China. Writing, Mm -hmm. we object to technologies that aid the powerful in oppressing the vulnerable. Daunting as these challenges sound, and high as the cost of pursuing the Chinese market may be, they haven't entirely deterred Google's top brass. Development of Dragonfly appears to have, at the very least, paused. The wealth and dynamism that make China so attractive to Google also mean the decision of whether or not to do business there is no longer the company's to make. What I got from that was it's the Google employees who have taken the mantle themselves to stop the Google leaders and top brass 
from going into China and kowtowing mm. to a regime that is so unrestrained in, in using technology to manipulate and control their citizens. I mean, whether the Google employees or the Google top brass will prevail, I put my money on the Google top brass. So maybe not such a promising um, avenue well, it, of democracy. I mean, well, it's interesting, isn't it? In the sense that Google employees, yeah, they're citizens, ethics and so on. And I'm very pleased that Google employees are doing that. In terms of <laughs> the structure-determined system that Google operates in, it operates in a system that demands that its revenue increases quarter by quarter, that its profits increase, that its share price increases, that its dividend increases. Mm. Oh, here's a damn great market called China. Well, we'll go and do what we have to do in order to be in that market. So off they'll go and do it. You know, you've got these tech giants sort of stuck in this place, which often is an enabler of freedom. It's given every human being on the planet access to the world's knowledge. Mm. Um, this is absolutely stunning and extraordinary. And indeed, is, is of course, the great hope for the future, that we are in an age of enlightenment. And I think we are in an age of enlightenment. We're, we're also in an age of some pretty horrible things going on. But whether the people brought up in that sea of knowledge will develop different attitudes and different ways of understanding the world and different learnings, which I think they will, is my mm. observation of young people, and therefore in time will produce a better society is, I think, where we're going. So they're sort of torn, aren't they, these tech mm. giants? Because on the one hand, they're great enablers of learning and freedom and therefore of democracy. On the other hand, they're party to some of the worst excesses of totalitarianism. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Hidden Power podcast. And of course, do check out the show notes. In our next episode, we hear from Dr. Perrette Tonyarist of the OECD on the sense of powerlessness at the heart of leadership. So I hope you'll join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.